We're going to review the works of God in the world this morning in Acts chapter 7. You can turn in your Bible with me to Acts chapter 7. Our passage this morning is a sermon. The book of Acts is filled with sermons um, speaking about God's work in the world. And this particular one is actually a recounting of God's work in leading up to Jesus as Savior. But Stephen, in this situation, is a deacon in the church, filled with God's Spirit. He was preaching and teaching, and they could not stand what he was saying. And so they arrest him, bring him before the ruling council of the Jews, accuse him, and want to silence him in some way or another, and their anger toward him is rising. Their accusations against him is that he has been speaking against the temple and against the law and wanting to wrongly change the customs of Moses. And they've brought in uh, false witnesses against him to accuse him of these things. And so Acts chapter 7 begins with a question. The question from the high priest of, are these things so? Are you one trying to pervert the things passed down to us by Moses? Are you trying to do away with the temple? What is going on? And the answer, this whole chapter, is Stephen's answer to these accusations. And it is a concise review of God's work in the Old Testament leading up to the cross of Jesus Christ. So the format of the sermon is going to be a little bit different today. I'm not going to read this whole chapter because it would take half of our time here together to read it. I'm going to review it, and then we're going to read together later in the sermon uh, the last section of this scripture. Stephen's answer is incredibly important because it supplies us context for the ministry and the crucifixion of Jesus. We need to understand that the cross of Christ is not a standalone event. It's not an event that kind of came out of nowhere and was amazing and important and then kind of faded into the past. It was led up to by all the actions of God from the creation of the world down to the moment in which Jesus was born. His incarnation, his life, his ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, these things were led up to and then there is purpose after them. And so they teach us the context of what Stephen is laying out for us today tells us how we got to this point and why it is so important. So at this point in time in Jerusalem, it's also important to recognize that everyone was talking about these things. This was not some obscure thing that people didn't understand what Stephen was talking about or why this was important. We learn this from Luke uh, 24. The Road to Emmaus. Uh, it's a passage set right after the resurrection of Jesus. And two of the disciples are leaving Jerusalem and walking out of Jerusalem. And they're talking about what was happening during that time in Jerusalem. And Jesus, resurrected, comes and starts walking with them down the road. But they don't know who he is. And he asks them, what are you guys talking about? And they say, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't understand what has happened with Jesus? And that even this morning, some of the women have gone to this empty tomb and they have seen that the stone rolled away and we don't understand what is going on and everybody's confused and disappointed. And what does Jesus say to them? Jesus says this to them, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken and then he goes into a period of doing exactly what Stephen does in this passage. 
He goes back to Moses and he starts to explain to these travelers what God has been doing in the world leading up to Jesus and then helping them understand from that context who Jesus actually is. Jesus does the exact same thing with them as Stephen does with this Sanhedrin group, recounting for them a history of who Jesus was and why he came. The progressive revelation of God, as recorded in Scripture, is how we understand God's work in the world. It is absolutely vital for us to understand who God is, what he is doing in the world, what is your place in what God is doing in the world, and then the context of what God is going to do in the future. What God is doing in the future is absolutely connected to what he is doing now and what he has done in the past. It is one plan that God is working out in the world. And this is essential to know God. I want you to make sure not to miss this morning that God is not a theory or a power. God is a person to be known. And it's worth talking about how do we know people? Because if God is a person to be known, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, we get to know a person in a certain way. If you did not meet, know me or I didn't know you and you said, well, I'm going to get to know Vic. I think I'll run lots of medical tests on him. So we're going to do a CT scan. We're going to take a full blood panel. We're going to do an EKG. We're going to do a bone density test, stress test, all kinds, of, all kinds of data. And you get this pile of data on your desk and you're cycling through it all, reading about what my blood pressure is and whatever, whatever. And you're like, well, I, I know this guy now. I really know this person. Do you really actually know me from reading all this data about me? The answer is, of course, no. You don't know a thing about me. You might know what my blood pressure is or whether, you know, what my bone density is, but you don't really know anything about me. And the only way that you could actually get to know me is for me to open my mouth and speak to you and say something to you, and you listen to that. That's how all personal relationships are built. People speak, and they listen, and you learn about who that person is. And we should not be surprised about this. We are a word-based people. Our knowledge of other people comes from words. And this is because we are made in the image of God. God is a word-based God. This relates to how when God chose to reveal himself most fully in the world, he did so through Jesus, who in the first chapter of John is called the Logos, or the Word of God. Jesus came into the world speaking and preaching. People knew certain things about God, but we come into the most intimate, personal relationship with God through hearing the words of Christ and believing those words as he teaches us from his own mouth who God is. And so Stephen, in his sermon, outlines the progressive revelation of God leading up to Jesus reminding his audience of what God has been doing and what God has been saying leading up to the precious ministry of Jesus. So there's four parts to this sermon in Acts chapter 7. There's Abraham, then there's Joseph, Moses, and the Jewish forefathers. Abraham, Joseph, um, Moses, and the Jewish forefathers, and then the reaction to the Jewish ruling council. So let's begin with Abraham. 
Abraham in Acts chapter 7 verse 2. Abraham is the forefather of all these things, the first called, the first promised by God to enter into a land and that a nation would come from him even though he had no children. And it's called the promised land because it was a land of promise. God promised to send Abraham out from where he was to a new land. But something very important about Abraham and many of these characters in the Old Testament is that even though they were promised something, they never actually received it in their lifetime. Abraham went out into this land, but he was told, you're going to go into this land, you're going to be a sojourner, but you're not actually going to possess it. In fact, your offspring will be enslaved for 400 years in a foreign land, and only then will they come out from that land into this land of promise. And so uh, Abraham receives from God a covenant or a covenant promise. And one of the seals of that promise is mentioned in verse 8. He gave him the covenant of circumcision. The covenant of circumcision was a very big deal and still is to the Jewish nation. It is an outward physical symbol, an outward physical sign of God's promise to the Jewish nation. Something received near birth for all Jewish males and then all the way, you have it until death. But it does not change the heart. And that's radically important. Because all throughout the Old Testament, we find that there are people that are a part of national Israel, but they're never going to enter into the kingdom of God. They have an outward symbol in their flesh, but their heart is hard as a rock and unchanged. And no one will ever enter into the kingdom of God until they have what is later called a, a circumcised heart, which the whole point of that means that your heart is actually changed toward God. This is the first mention of this sign of circumcision here in the book of Acts. And this becomes a very important theme in the book of Acts. Because as the gospel goes from just the nation of Israel, and if you wanted to become a part of the people of God, you joined Israel, to this idea that if you want to become a part of the people of God, you follow after Jesus Christ. And the gospel goes out to all these non-Jewish Gentile nations. The issue of circumcision becomes a a hotly debated topic. And when we get down to Acts chapter 15, there's a whole council in Jerusalem with all the main people there saying, what are we going to do about this? Are we going to require everyone that comes into the church to be circumcised or not? And we'll get to this in some months, but it is very important to understand that the decision is no. This physical sign relates to national Israel. It does not relate to everyone coming into the church. And it's also important to see that they do not connect anywhere in the book of Acts baptism with circumcision. That's sometimes a wrong connection that is made. We'll talk more about that in the future, but I wanted to just note it here. This is something that is given to the nation of Israel from the time of Abraham forward. The next character mentioned here is Joseph. Joseph is in verse 9 and following. Joseph is a very important, pivotal character in the Old Testament. He's a character that is given visions when he is a young man as to what's going to happen in the future. And these visions relate to his brothers bowing down before him. And when he shares these visions with his brothers, they are not happy about the situation. And I'm not a person that believes that Joseph was wrong in sharing these things. The problem was, when it was within his brothers' hearts. They were evil men, and they hated God and the works of God. 
And they hated Joseph for it so much that they were going to murder him, just outright kill him and get rid of him. But as they were about to kill him, the opportunity to sell him into slavery and make money off of him came, and so they sold him into human slavery instead. He went to Egypt, the land of their enemies, and there uh, served as a slave until he was falsely accused and then thrown into a dungeon and imprisoned for years. And all of this is so fascinating when you look at verses 9 and 10, when it says exactly what it says back in Genesis, that God was with him and that God's favor and wisdom was upon him. Would you normally look at the life of a person who was sold into slavery, falsely accused, imprisoned, lived a life of exile as a person that the favor of God rested upon them and the wisdom and the love of God was upon them? I would venture to say that you would say no, that you would say a person that lived a life like that, you might be afraid that they were cursed of God or they had done some terrible evil that would cause all these things to come upon their life. And so this is a very, very important lesson for us to learn from characters in the Old Testament, particularly from the life of Joseph, that God clearly works in and through hardship and suffering and waiting to accomplish his will. Let me say that again. God clearly works in and through hardship, suffering, and waiting to accomplish his will. What God works out in the life of Joseph is radically important. He's a crucial character in the Old Testament because he's told Abraham, your offspring will be enslaved for hundreds of years. Well, how do they enter into this slavery? They enter into this slavery through what God does in the life of Joseph by sending a famine and putting Joseph in a place to supply for the family food and in bringing them to Egypt to supply them with food, he's actually setting them up for over 10 generations of slavery. Gee, thanks, Uncle Joseph. Like, I really appreciate that. But that was a part of what God was doing. And again, waiting, suffering, hardship for these people. What was all of that about? So that God could bring them by the exodus out of Egypt and God could display his power to the nations by bringing an enslaved people out of the most powerful nation in the world, openly showing his power. But again with Joseph, we have something very similar to Abraham and the other forefathers, where what is promised is not received in the lifetime of Joseph. When you read the last chapter of the book of Genesis, which relates to Joseph, Joseph, as he is dying, makes his brothers promise to him that they will not leave his bones in Egypt. Why does he say that? Because Joseph, by faith, believes that he was a part of something that God was doing and that God would keep his promise. And at some point in the future, he would bring these people out of Egypt to the promised land. And they would enter into that land. And we know from uh, the later writings in Scripture, especially Joshua, that they do exactly bring his bones out of Egypt and bury them in Shechem in the promised land. So the next character here in God's work in the past is Moses in Egypt, the land where they were brought by the work of the Lord through Joseph. And the people have greatly multiplied from a small clan to nearly a million people. And they're so populous that the Egyptians are concerned that they're going to overthrow the government. And so they enslave them bitterly to keep them oppressed. 
And in that oppression, even then, they're so populous that they begin to kill all of the firstborn males. It's decreed by Pharaoh that every male child of the Hebrews should be killed. And there's this scuffle back and forth with the midwives, and the midwives say, you know, before God, they're not going to do this. And so many of the children are able to live, and Moses is one of them. But it's important to see that even though under the threat of death from Pharaoh, Moses' mother says, I will not kill my child. I don't know what's going to happen with this child, but I'm not going to kill my child. I'm going to do the best I can to make a way for this child to live. And so she comes up with this plan to try to get baby Moses in front of Pharaoh's daughter, which she does. And by the providential purposes of God, this daughter of Pharaoh adopts Moses into her household and he lives and is raised in the court of Egypt and learns all the customs, all the language, all the rules, everything that's going on there. When he comes back later, this is not his first time in this setting. He was raised in this setting. But Moses tries to take things into his own hands and deliver the people of Israel when he's 40 years old by going out and killing one of the taskmasters. And it doesn't at all go as he planned. And he kills this man and buries him in the sand. And the people don't accept what he's doing. And for fear of his life, he flees Egypt out into the wilderness. And he becomes a shepherd. Marries, has children, and assumes that he's just going to live out his days as a nomadic shepherd on Mount Sinai, a land that's going to become very important later. But then he is around 80 years old, 40 years after that, as he's shepherding sheep one day, he sees this bush. And this bush is on fire, but it is not consumed. And he goes over to it to see what is happening there. And it is the glory of the Lord being displayed in the middle of the wilderness. And when he draws near to this glory of the Lord, he has heard all the stories that I've just been telling you. And from this bush, the Lord speaks to him and says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've heard many of these stories. If we were to encounter God in this way and him say, I am Jesus. I am the one you've heard all these stories about. I am speaking to you now. And this is the God who speaks to Moses. And he declares to Moses his name. A very important part of the story. He says, my name is I am who I am. And you say, what kind of a name is that? That's a very odd name. But like all the names of God in scripture, they're simply descriptions of his character. And the I am who I am is a statement that God is the self-defining God. God is the only one who is decided who he will be. He is not defined by any outside force. He has decided and defined himself. He is God. We live in a day and age where we are lied to so often about this particular issue. It's the original lie that came all the way from the time of Adam and Eve where they said, I want to be like God. Well, to be like God is to be able to define yourself, be whatever you want to be, to do what you want to do. We do not live like that. We are not able to define ourselves. We are given definition by God, and we are given a life to live, and we walk in the life that God has put before us, and this is how we live our lives. We do not get to redefine ourselves. We are not God. 
God calls Moses in verse 35 of this chapter to be the ruler and redeemer of Israel, to go in and call for the people to be released by Pharaoh. And he's very forceful with Moses on that mountain. And Moses wants nothing to do with it. If you've read the story, Moses says, oh, thank you, I appreciate that, but I don't want to do that. And God says, no, you're going to do that. And he says, I really don't want to do that. And God says, no, you're going to do that. And he says, I, I just find somebody else, God. And then God gets angry with Moses and says, I, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, you're going to go deliver my people. And he submits himself to the Lord and he does. He goes and does what God has called him to do. And the rest of his life is radically different. Verse 36, he goes and leads this exodus, this thing that God has set up with this nation living in slavery. Moses is going to be the instrument that God uses to bring them out of this slavery and glorify himself as he crushes the Egyptian people. And he leads them to Mount Sinai, a place of worship where the Lord is going to reveal himself to the people in a glorious and powerful way. Lightning and giant, the whole top of the mountains on fire and sounds of trumpets that are so loud that the people are terrified of the presence of God. But Moses walks right up the mountain as called by God to see the Lord and, and receive his word face to face. Verse 38 speaks to this. That Moses in the wilderness goes up on Mount Sinai and receives, as it says, the living oracles from God. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments of God. Let me remind you that Moses cut out stone tablets, takes blank tablets up the mountain, and God inscribes on them in his own hand his word. Going back to how does God speak to us? He speaks to us by his word. We don't have to guess what the will of the Lord is. He tells us very plainly. In the most permanent way possible, the Lord writes his word and his will in stone so that the people will not lose it and will not forget it. But verse 39 is the, the turning point of this sermon and of this chapter. Because if you know the story, Moses comes down Mount Sinai from this glorious time of having been with the Lord in an unforgettable and permanently uh, recorded way to the people having forsaken the Lord. Verse 39 says this, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. All of this that God had been doing, culminating at Mount Sinai in a time of worship, the forefathers of the Jews would not believe. They refused to obey him. They wanted to push Moses aside. As you read of these things in the Old Testament, they were constantly trying to get rid of Moses. Rebellion after rebellion after complaining and whining. These people were always turning against Moses. And they had hearts that longed to go back to Egypt. And this is such a powerful lesson for all of us. Because if you read back, why did God go and deliver them at that time? It says he heard their prayers, that they were praying and calling out to God to deliver them from the slavery. And when God delivered them from the slavery, they were overjoyed that God had answered their prayers. But as soon as they got out into the wilderness and there was some level of hardship, they began to look at the past and have the past be something that it was not. Every one of us have been in this situation. 
where we longed so badly to be out of a place and asked God and prayed for the Lord to take us out of that place. And then we get to the new place. We begin to not remember what that old place was really like. And we complained against God over here, just like we complained about him in the past. And we want to go back. And I want to read to you from Numbers chapter 11, this important summary of this. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Classic words of hard-hearted, rebellious Israel. Numbers 11, 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Wow, that's a powerfully negative, powerfully ungrateful statement and a lie. It, it, they acted like it was an all-you-can-eat buffet and life was just good in slavery back in Egypt. But they had no faith to believe God for the future. They did not have the faith of Abraham or Moses or Joseph to believe that God would bring to pass the promise that he had made. Instead, their lives were consumed with grumbling and disobedience, and they paid for it with their lives in the desert as they were disciplined by God. Verse 42 takes up the last section, the forefathers, talking more about these unbelieving forefathers. Verse 42 but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. God turning away from his people. This is very important for us to understand. It's the same message that we see in Romans chapter 1 when God talks about giving people over to the sinfulness of their hearts. You see, we don't need an outside conquering nation or some outside terrible sinful influence to destroy us because the seed of corruption is in our own heart. All that has to happen is the Lord removes the restraining influence of his Holy Spirit and lets the sinfulness of our hearts just run wild and we will destroy ourselves. And if you're honest with yourself, you know it's true that if it were not for the grace of God holding you back from sin, that you would destroy yourself in it. And this is what happens with the nation of Israel. But verses 44 through 46, Stephen reminds them that even while they were grossly sinning, the presence of the Lord was with them. So he had made this covenant promise to never forsake them. And he is saving people out of the nation and continuing to work with them while on the whole they are a rebellious people and the nation continues to descend into ungodliness. Verse 44 speaks about the tent of meeting with Moses. Even while this ungodly group of people are constantly rebelling and complaining, the Lord is physically displaying his presence over the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. And the face of Moses shines with the glory of God, and yet they will have none of it. Verse 45 it talks about the presence of the Lord with Joshua as they go in to take the promised land as the Lord fulfills his promise. Still their hearts are hard. When we get to David and Solomon and the permanently built temple and the glory of the Lord being displayed upon the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence displayed with the people and yet their hearts are hard and they are eventually taken into exile. This is where I want to take up reading our passage uh, from 
chapter 7, verses 48 through 60. So I would ask you to please stand with me to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. Chapter 7, verse 48 through the end of the chapter. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, in ears you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, they called out, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. You see, the presence of the Lord with his people could not be contained in the temple. It's very important for us to understand what they did not understand. God is a person. God is not the temple. God is not the system of laws. He is the person that is the reality behind all of those things. And so in keeping with their forefathers, which is important to see the, the hard-hearted unbelief displayed by the Sanhedrin in this time is not out of character. It is in keeping with the hardness of heart that has been with the people of Israel all down to this time. They are described by Stephen as a stiff-necked group of people. That is the, the physical posture of a proud person. A humble person is willing to bow their head and bow their knee. And every time that we see in scripture a person coming into the glorious presence of the Lord, they all bow down. They all humble themselves before the Lord. The proud person is the one of a stiff neck, an impenitent heart. And they are described as those who are uncircumcised of heart. Going back to what we were talking about earlier. They are a person of a worldly heart. They have no mark in their heart of the true and earnest love of Christ. Their life and their being is marked by worldliness. They have no ear to hear what God is saying. They don't want to hear what Stephen is saying. They didn't hear what Jesus is saying because their ears are stopped and they cannot hear these things. They do not know God. They resist the Holy Spirit. They are pressing out what Stephen is saying with all their might. They do not want to hear about or participate in the work of God. 
And people resist the Holy Spirit every day. You may have been a person, and you may be a person this morning, right now, that is in the midst of resisting the Holy Spirit, pressing away that God might not have his way in your life. But we believe in this church in the irresistible grace of God, which means that God's will will be accomplished in the world according to his ways. If that were not true, nothing of what I've said here this morning would have happened. The hard-hearted rebelliousness of these people would have won the day, and all of this would have derailed into nothing. But the will of the Lord will be accomplished, and it will be accomplished in particular hearts and minds. They killed, he says, those who announced the Messiah. This most, most recently in this passage is John the Baptist. He who proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And by the, the Jewish people under Herod, he was imprisoned and beheaded. They had no love for John the Baptist. They did not want to hear his message because they did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And Stephen says, you or this generation betrayed and murdered the righteous one. And then there's another turning point in the sermon. Because it begins with accusations. Accusations that he is perverting the law of Moses and undermining the sacrificial system in the temple and all these things. But the way this sermon ends is that Stephen turns the whole thing right back around and puts it on them. He says in verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. What Stephen is saying with this entire sermon is that you do not understand what God has been doing in the world. You think you do? All of it has been leading up to Jesus, and you have missed Jesus. You don't understand what the Scripture said. You don't understand who Jesus is. The law has been given to you, and you have not kept it. So he's telling this group of the ruling Jewish leaders that they don't understand the Scriptures, and they are the ones not obeying the law. And that did not go over well. It says in verse 54, when they heard this, they were enraged. They start grinding their teeth together. A physical, I mean, they just, it's all they can do to stay in their chairs. And as you'll see, they don't stay in their chairs long. Because when their physical rage starts to simmer, you or me, like I, if you're me, I, I'm starting to look for where the door is. You know, how can I get out of here? Is there any way I can run or what can I do? What does Stephen do? Very important. It says he looks to heaven. He looks up. Look to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And as he looks up to heaven, he is given a glimpse of heaven. Part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian is that we believe in spiritual realities. We believe that there is a heaven. We believe that we have a soul. We believe in such things as angels and demons. They are not always visible. They are made visible by God according to his purposes. But their lack of being able to be seen by the light receptors that we call our eyeballs does not mean that they don't exist. And so they are made known to Stephen at this time. And he gets a, a window into the glory of heaven. And he sees God the Father and Jesus as the Son of Man standing at his right hand ready to judge the world. The Son of Man is the title given to Jesus in Daniel chapter 7. That They would have definitely understood this. It's a passage where all authority is given to the Son of Man. He might be given a kingdom that will never end and have authority that will never stop its increase. And they are say, he is saying that Jesus is there in heaven, resurrected in this place. 
Going back to what I said earlier, this audience understands who Jesus is. He was Jesus who was not too long ago walking the streets and preaching with authority and power and they're claiming he's resurrected from the dead and now Stephen is saying, not only has he ascended, I see him in heaven and they absolutely lose it. It's like the soccer game when people jump over the fences and rush the field. They, they literally jump over the tables and grab him, stop their ears, scream out, stop talking and they drag him out of the city and stone him to death in order to silence him. We're told in verse 58 that Saul was present and apparently they took off their robes as they were stoning him and throwing rocks at him. A horrible, horrible way to die. It was supposed to be the death of the worst of the blasphemers and they assume that he is such. But his dying words are absolutely important for all of us to hear. The way in which Stephen dies should be the hope that, that all of us that we die in this way. What does he say as he is dying. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and forgive them. Don't hold this against them. Both of these things are in keeping with the way that Jesus died. When Jesus died, he commends his spirit to the Lord and he asks that his enemies not be judged for what they are doing. And he dies in the exact same way. And I would argue to you that every Christian May God help us that every Christian would die in this way. That the last words of our mouth would be to commend our soul to Jesus. That we would not die in fear. Stephen is not dying in fear. Stephen is dying and believing that he is going to soon be in the presence of the Lord. And he is commending his soul to the Lord that it might be received by grace. And he dies not at odds with his enemies. So many people die still with a heart full of hatred for their enemies. But the heart of the Christian is one who has the love of Christ towards their enemies. That even as he is being actively killed by this people, he does not want vengeance upon them. He wants to see them come to salvation. May it be so with us. We can know that the work of the Lord is truly complete in our heart when we can pray for our enemies as they actively are persecuting us. And so Stephen dies. He is the first martyr of the church. And we're going to see next week that his death causes a dispersion, a fear that travels through the church, which presses people out. But as they go out, the message of the gospel goes out with them. And it is the beginning of the spread of the gospel to foreign lands through his faithfulness. And the story of the way that he dies is recorded here in scripture for us. As I close, I want to close with two thoughts related to this. The first is, have you read these things for yourself? We live in a greater time of access to the Bible than any nation or time in the world. You can go to any bookstore and buy a Bible, download an app. You can read these things anywhere. But have you read them? It says that when Jesus was telling on the Emmaus Road, these disciples explaining the scriptures to them about his work in the Old Testament, their heart burned within them as they heard the word of the Lord. It will be the same with you as you read about the works of God in the Old Testament. It will help you and strengthen you and you will see something of God's work. It is something that cannot be substituted for me telling you about it. If you have never read the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you must go back and read those things. Now, I understand that it's hard 
to get through some of those sections. You're going to read lots of measurements about the temporal and the tabernacle, laws and laws and laws and more laws and some more laws, and then you're going to read some genealogies of so-and-so related to so-and-so. They're all there for a reason, okay? It's all a part of Scripture, but it doesn't mean you have to read it the first time you pass through. And so my encouragement to you, if you've never read the narrative passages of the Old Testament, when you get to these sections that are just so difficult, it's okay to turn the page and get to the next narrative so that you actually get through all the narrative and you understand what God has been doing and you grasp it. Then you can go back and say, why are these other pages here? And over time, it will become very valuable to you. But read these things for yourself that you might be able to speak like Stephen is speaking. But lastly and mostly important, most importantly, do you believe what Stephen said? When you hear all this that Stephen said, what is your reaction to it? Do you believe it? These people were enraged. I believe that's a very rare reaction in our day and age. In our day and age, the normal reaction is complete apathy. You hear all this and you say, well, who cares? What's, well, what's the big deal? Who's playing today? Like, can we get out of here and get lunch? Where are we going for lunch? You know, because this makes no difference to me at all. And you need to hear, you need to understand that there's a problem with that. When I stand up here and recount the history of God's redemptive work in the world and sending a savior that we might be forgiven and have eternal life, and all you can think about is whether you want fries or a, or a burger for lunch, there's something seriously wrong with your heart. Because you don't care about God or what God is doing in the world and you need to understand that both unbelief and, I'm sorry, both anger and apathy will lead to your damnation because both of them are unbelief. You must repent of your sins and you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And however it is that you reject him, that rejection will lead to your doom. Because the Lord Jesus will judge all the world. As it says in the Apostles' Creed, the quick and the dead. That means the living and the dead. And the only way that we will escape the judgment of the Lord God is by grace. By grace we are saved through faith. Only through the grace of Jesus Christ bestowed upon us. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you will have a soft heart. And a head that is willing to bow humbly before the Lord Jesus that you'll have ears to hear his word, that as he is speaking, that you will hear what he is saying and that it will sink deeply into your soul and that it will change your heart. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this sermon of Stephen. Thank you for Stephen's passion. Thank you for your word that it's recorded here that we can read about it. But here we are 2,000 years after this event we are still talking about the resurrected Jesus because you live and the kingdom of God is real. Father, I pray that you will help us to know you, that we will find our identity in you, that we will forsake the things of this world and that we will humble ourselves before Jesus and that you would be the most important person in all the world to us and that we would long to hear your word before the word of anyone else. Lord, may you fill our hearts with your love and with your joy and with your hope and with your peace. May we go out into the world filled with your spirit to say something about Jesus. May you use us that the lost might be saved and the gospel go forward to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.